0: People
1: need order Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to 12 Rules for What? My name is Sam, I'm Alex, and we're here today with Angie.
2: Hi, thanks for inviting me.
1: From Angie Speaks, which is really exciting. Uh, we're going to be talking a bit about the occult mm-hmm. and its relationship to Nazism, first of all and maybe also to fascism, Italian fascism. And then we're going to be talking uh, kind of the second part about the way that those uh, ideas, occultic ideas, occultic practices have kind of come forward and are now kind of forming part of a contemporary fascist landscape as well. And we also might talk a bit about how those things might be kind of projected into the future over the next, say, you know, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly, and I think Alex does as well, thinks about kind of anti-fascism as like a long-term project one that needs to be kind of um, ready for the changes that, uh, for example, like your climate change will bring and how that might kind of affect mm. the fascist movement, how that might kind of affect politics more generally. And so we'll be kind of thinking a bit about that. Just like a quick
0: content warning that we will be talking about like racism and Nazis and all the
1: stuff that goes along with that. So just keep that in mind. There might also be some stuff about goat sacrificing uh, <laughs> at some point. But uh, You read the same thing I did. Yes, uh, the, about the, the libertarian the, candidate.
0: Uh, Uh, sol invictus
1: yes sol invictus so let's go back to uh the very beginning let's go back to um maybe you could kind of talk a a little bit about what you think is the kind of the principal relationship between like esoteric thought or the occult Mm. and the original nazi party Mm.
2: um so this is a very kind of fascinating area of history but one that's like Pretty difficult to unpick. Um, of course, occult ideas have existed for as long as humans have. Um, but in terms of its relation relationship to fascist regimes, um, there was a sort. There was. There's been resurgences of occultism throughout history, and repressions of occultism throughout history and the nazis sort of came about during a time where there was a bit of a resurgence happening again in culture um there was a lot of um uh, german occultism german mysticism you know Uh, flitting around the intelligentsia of Germany at the time Um, there were people like Evola you know who were espousing a lot of these um, ideas there were a lot of occult societies during the time that were um, forming and in their infancy and um, a lot of the ideas that uh, kind of came to fruition with sort of the Nazi ethos were ones that were based around the idea of race and a mythical kind of Aryan superior race. So, this was the key occult idea that um, sort of formed around the Nazi gnosis at the time. Um, One of the major influences was uh, Madame Helena Blavatsky, who was a a cult, cult, um, you know, she was a a mystic and an occultist. Uh, She was Russian, but she lived in many different parts of Europe and um, her idea of root race and um, the idea of the Aryan race was first sort of popularized by her and she uh, then took those ideas and put them into theosophical um, uh, literature and things like that and they sort of found their way into all kinds of different occult circles. So it was sort of an amalgamation of influences that um, sort of correlated with the Nazi ideas there was a lot of um a lot of new information obviously about you know darwinian ideas as well and human origins so this became an area of obsession not only for people in the sciences but people in the occult and those weird ideas sort of married together to form this sort of um what occultists call uh, aeonic cosmology which is the idea that humanity is split into different stages of evolution and these occult societies saw it as their goal slash um, it was their prerogative to sort of push humanity down a specific line of evolution. Um, And, you know, that was quite attractive as a model to the Nazi um, party, the kind of Nazi party while it was in its infancy at the time. And it gave them a lot of like hope and inspiration. And, you know, it was quite an, an empowering thing to, uh, have these ideas correlate with their goals and ambitions
1: so there's kind of like a um, what, what does it mean practically i guess for people to try and like live in this kind of aeonic um the sense that there are kind of eons and they're kind of circling and time is not this kind of arrow of modernity or time is not the kind of endless progression towards some sort of you know future liberal society or anything like that but time is just kind of circling around and around and around what do you think it means or what did it mean for them to kind of practically engage with that like what what did they do because of their beliefs about paganism that they you think they Mm. what wouldn't have done otherwise
2: well um I, it, it, it sort of came because part of the um, one of the major influences on uh, Blavatsky was Eastern um, ideas about all kinds of different, you know, things. She was very inspired by Hinduism and uh, Buddhism, Jainism. But one of the major things that she took was the idea of non-linear history, the idea of cyclical history, which is like a very Eastern um, idea, the idea that things are in sort of a stasis things don't really change um uh totally they're just sort of cycles so this was a very new idea to western philosophy obviously because there's this idea about history sort of being this linear kind of progressive um progressive thing um but If we're talking about fascists, um, it's kind of an attractive idea to fascists because fascism is all about uh, keeping things from progressing. It's about keeping things in a sort of stasis. So the idea that things are destined to um, be in a sort of cyclical kind of thing gave them this idea about destiny that um, was incredibly empowering and inspiring for them. So if nothing else, it really did act as a, um, sort of this mythic, imaginatory, um, almost in a Jungian sense, this way of sort of imag- imagining the future and imagining one's place in the universe, which can be a very powerful thing when it comes to motivating people, creating a movement, um, you, know, uh, you know, making a cohesive vision for the future and, and things like that.
0: And this, this cyclical thing um, goes back to Avala as well. Um, one of the many reasons he didn't like Jewish people was because of their like linear conception of time and like mm-hmm. the, the, the kind of idea of time progressing towards an end point and so he his traditionalism was a lot about um the cycle of history allowing these heroic acts and these heroic events to happen over and over and over again mm-hmm. um so I guess that kind of links in real strongly to the mm-hmm. kind of fascist like kind of evocation like a mythic past that everyone can live in now mm-hmm. um which I think is really kind of interesting to Mm -hmm. this kind of conversation like people kind of try and wrap their heads around why the Nazis were really into Hinduism and like really into Tibet and things like that and it really goes back to these kind of, this overarching theory of like root races Mm -hmm. and the Aryan race as like kind of Indo-European kind of hybrid Um, but also that Tibet is uh, like somehow, like where the last bastion of like the Aryan race kind of fled to, mm.
1: and where they kind of kept the uh, yes. kept the, the, the flame alive. Yeah. I mean, someone I can't remember exactly who I'm going to out myself as going to on here, but someone uh, maybe during the Second World War funded an exhibition yeah. to Tibet yeah. to prove that uh, Buddhism yeah. had Aryan roots. They took
2: their head measuring devices with them and went <laughs> and measured the skulls of some Tibetans to see whether they uh, correlated with the sort of Germanic. I don't know how successful their experiment was, but it, it was a, a, thing that happened, um, and that's that's another thing that I, I just wanted to clarify. Um, the idea of cyclical history isn't explicitly fascist. Yeah. Um. Because there's a there's, an, there's a there's that's kind of an issue on the left is as soon as something becomes problematic, we abandon that territory, we cede it to the right, which is why we are always like kind of on the margins. Um. But uh, yeah. The idea of cyclical history isn't um isn't inherently fascist and a lot of the ideas that we're going to discuss tonight aren't inherently fascist they just so happen to somewhat align with the goals of the fascists that we're talking about the different sort of fascist regimes uh that we're talking about so i just wanted to make that clear um if you meet somebody who believes in the cyclical model of history that doesn't mean that they're a fascist
0: or like someone who is a pagan there are plenty of non-fascist pagans (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, um, definitely and i think you're totally right about that point about the left as well like if you like, if everything becomes a fascist thing, then we're not going to be left with anything.
2: Exactly. Um, I think we should do a better job of just like claiming things and claiming territory rather than it surrendering it, which is what we seem to do quite a lot. Um, but yeah,
1: I'm interested in this notion of rejuvenation. Um, fascism, what fascism is, is a particular kind of reactionary mass movement that aims what he calls paleogenetic, so right? Like, Ultra nationalism combined with this like regeneration myth. Yeah. How do you think that will? How do you think that is playing out? now in contemporary fascism
2: um well i think that uh i think that the uh, well obviously we see the um we see the kind of residual uh ethos of the original uh esoteric fascists sort of being revived by modern fascist movements and again it's because of this sort of cyclical model of history mm-hmm. um if you look at there there's an occult uh kind of satanic circle called the Order of the Nine Angles. I don't know if you've heard of them before. Yeah. But they're a super fascist, occult, um, Nazi group, and they also believe in the same sort of aonic Ae- cosmological model of time and the universe. And um they see this specific period, the period of sort of liberal democracy and, you know, neoliberalism and all of the things that are going on now. They see this specific period as uh another stage of that Aeonic cosmology, a stage where they are planting the seeds for the ultimate rise. Um, the so, Imperium. Uh, yeah, the Imperium. is they, That's what they want to establish is the Imperium, yeah. as it's called. Um, but this is a very sort of special moment in their mind. Um, and they see uh, it as an opportunity to be seized upon, sort of in a similar way that leftists see it as an opportunity... To be um, to be seized upon because the contradictions of neoliberalism being exposed are just as beneficial for us as it is for for the fascists. But they see it as this uh, m- almost mythical kind of time, this sort of mi- mythical moment for you know them to steer history in the direction that they want to steer it in.
1: What's specific right. about the is it? So the the kind of things I can imagine would be the things that have seemed kind of important um, to, let's say, like the neo-paganists or the kind of um, Mm -hmm. the the white supremacist neo-paganists that I've been uh, reading Mm -hmm. is basically two kind of things um, that relate to uh, how you should be as a person. Mm -hmm. One of them is um, a kind of Mm hyper-masculinity. And it's very kind of obvious. um, uh, that masculinity of a certain kind is diminishing in its importance in our culture. And the other thing is that they are fixated on the notion of kind of the excellence or the kind of the person who goes well beyond the crowd, mm-hmm. who has immense conviction, immense kind of like depth. Of, kind
2: of ubermensch, the Nietzsche, Yeah, that kind of thing, right? Yeah.
1: So, um, you know, it could be argued that like Nietzsche is at least as much a kind of like a fulcrum point for these mm-hmm. developments, these movements in the early 20th mm-hmm. century as, um, you know, someone like Madame Blavatsky. Mm-hmm. Um how much do you think that this kind of objection to like a fukuyami and kind of last man vagueness to life Mm. a kind of a a lack of conviction a lack of like Mm -hmm. strength how much of that is a motivating force for a return contemporaneously Mm. contemporarily to things notions of the occult
2: uh massively um you you know we're kind of in a bit of a for lack of a better word, like postmodern void at the moment. Um, you know, all of the major meta narratives have been deconstructed. And we're at this sort of point in history now where we're like, should we reconstruct the meta narratives? Should we leave them to the dust? Should we, um, you know, we resurrect the old ones like we're playing with our own shit we don't really know what we're doing and it's sort of a prime kind of rich soil for these sorts of these sort of reactionary movements to grow from um the idea of these uh kind of sacred ideals from the past that are being um that have been preserved through time and through history, that are just there waiting for us to go back and rediscover them, to give us the sort of meaning that we're lacking in modernity. Um, it's sort of a, a reaction against modernity, um, a reaction against where uh, our highly mechanized capitalist world has bought us. Um, and the idea of returning to something, you know, almost pagan (laughs) is attractive to certain people and that's not just to fascists it's also to people who aren't fascists as well um not everybody who's a pagan necessarily has this anti-modernity uh uh you know attitude towards them but when it comes to esoteric fascism that's kind of where the root of it is the idea that you know there is this sort of mythic time that we can create this mythic kind of utopia on on Earth again, basically, which is the goal. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and I can think this this kind of split between like kind of a imposing like a narrative on like our time is like kind of even present in like the debates within paganism. Mm. So um, there's a uh, I can't remember the guy, the Odinist guy, the Astarte. Uh, Astarte, astral- yeah, assembly. yeah. yeah. Stephen
1: McNalen that's the guy.
0: Um, he's an Odinist and He's very much of the camp that, you know, white people and people who can trace their roots back to, you know, white countries, Western Europe and America, uh, have these like kind of like Norse gods, like watching over them with a, like a special connection to that they can commune with, and like other races can of course have their other gods, but like no one can like cross or intermingle.
2: That's uh, kind of funny because I actually have like. Um, what are they called? I have like Nordic runes at home under my altar. <laughs> I have um, uh, candles for the Norns. Um, I think that's a bunch of bullshit, and I I do that specifically because it pisses those kinds of people off. So um, there
0: is another school which angie falls <laughs> <you both> into, <laughs> which is where kind of anything goes basically, and yeah. it's an it's an interesting kind of. I think it's a really kind of powerful subversion of like who we are and. What, what our place is and wh- where we stand and it, that's that's like a lot of modern fascism is like it's rooted in kind of geography in mm. a very kind of like real way you mm. see like the European New Right for example or Dugin which is someone we haven't mentioned yet on the podcast. Mm. Um,
2: it's, very, it's very interesting to me because um, I you know I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who kind of messes around in pagan paradigms and I you know study a lot about you know mythology and you know f- things from all over the world the two major paradigms that i'm the most involved with are the yoruba paradigm because i'm originally yoruba so i have my roots in africa and you know different uh norse uh norse gods interest me uh you know the celtic gods interest me and celtic mythology interests me a lot of the stuff from the british isles also interest because i live here this is like the land that i was born on um you know, and uh, this, the only thing I ever see is similarities between the stories, the archetypes that are present within these different cultures. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, a weird thing for me when I hear uh, those uh, Nordic kind of neo-fascists speak about the sort of separation between, you know, the cultures and this and that, because I see I see a lot of similarities Um, when I I see, you know, Thor, I see Shango, you know, when I hear about their rituals and their way of life, you know, I see so many similarities between, you know, my own culture Um, and, you know, when you look globally around the world, uh, diasporas of people who have been displaced have always been able to meld their folk religion with the folk religion of the places where they've been displaced because paganism is notoriously pluralistic and very accepting of different gods and traditions. There have been, you know, gods that have been adopted into certain pantheons from pantheons of people who they've conquered or people who have, you know, assimilated into their culture somehow. So it's always kind of um, weirded me out, to be honest, how they kind of try to keep it separate in that sense.
1: So what what does this separation do for the people who are involved in it? So does it offer them something like uh, a notion of a tribe, or does it offer them something like, um, uh, is there is there some kind of pleasure gained, or is there some sort of sense of meaning gained in that kind of restriction, or that refusal to be, mm-hmm. to open it out?
0: Or? An interesting one, especially like of all these kind of movements and groups that are in America, because obviously, you know, this is not their land, <laughs> and... So they have to. I think they have to start constructing these kind of, like heavily enforced these kind of pantheons and beliefs, in order to like justify their existence in that land. Yeah. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And and that's something that I'm, like American far right movements have like always kind of been very uncomfortable around. Mm. Is like the kind of colonization of another land. Mm-hmm. Um, So I find that incredible, it makes much more sense for like European fascists to be doing this kind of stuff, because at least they kind of live there, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's
2: it's kind of, it's about identity at the end of the day, it's about finding a sense of meaning and purpose, Um, you know, they feel rudderless, a lot of the people who gravitate towards this form of kind of, um, I guess that you could call it ham-fisted spirituality, feel rudderless and it it feels like a place for them to go but when we talk about america and the spiritual traditions within the american continent america is kind of a haunted house i mean (laughs) there's uh, all kinds of uh, spiritual traditions that are hanging out hanging out there and all kinds of archetypical forces that just are vying for dominion over that very strange strange territory i mean you see this theme in movies like the shining where you know the theme of the Native American burial ground and and you know how it's this sort of um, this sort of really friendly sort of veneer of of Americana and the beauty of Americana, but just beneath the surface there's genocide, there's murder, there's you know all kinds of awful things, slavery, rape, all kinds of really horrible things lingering beneath the surface, and you know fascist spirituality is kind of a coat of paint over that it's like it's almost like a suppression of the things that one truly needs to face in order to become integrated and I think that that's the issue is they are not only uh, do they feel rudderless and untethered they are also afraid of looking at their own shadow if you know what I mean in Mm -hmm. like a Jungian sense they're very they're afraid of, of of witnessing what it truly means to be an American um so they kind of try to cover it up with things that are very far removed from them in any sort of reality.
0: <laughs> it's also like, it's also like basically just them with extra steps, um, mm. like white supremacy with like bells and whistles on it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like the guy we talked about, what's he called? Steve McNallan or whatever his name is. He, you know, is like post, video, posted a video on 2017 on altright.com, which was basically where he liberally quoted the 14 words, which is a white supremacist kind of slogan that was also thought by a like an Odinist, guy who yeah, was in Lane. prison David yeah. Lin, um and it, it's kind of just adding extra kind of scenery mm. onto the uh, central kind of tenet which is like white people are better than every other race exactly there there is somehow exists this like kind of race above the races mm-hmm. um which is well I think is kind of like if you're just going back to like the Nazis and like the following it through the 20th century if you're like unreasonable enough to like believe in white supremacy then you're clearly susceptible to a whole lot of un- un- other unreasonable thinking mm. um just to i don't know just go to go back to the nazis like there was like an interesting tension within the the regime uh, with like w- with how kind of the kind of border sciences and the occult were put what uses they were put to mm. um so the, one of the interesting things and i really recommend this book if you haven't read it called hitler's monsters which is a really interesting read about Nazis The Nazis and Supernatural Imaginary. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that after the war started, they got more into the occult, which is a kind of a bizarre thing. You think you like strip away all the frippery and get on with like fighting other people. Um, That's if
2: you think it's frippery, though. Exactly. (laughs) That's the thing.
0: (laughs) People like to like the historiography about this kind of thing has gone through like multiple phases and. People like to say that, you know, occult practices were common throughout society. There wasn't, like, anything particular about the Nazis. That meant they were susceptible to it. But, you know, the Nazis really only were against the occult when it kind of, like, treaded on their kind of dominion, on their, like, supremacy within Germ- within their borders. Like, it kind of treaded on, like, the, the, the supremacy of Hitler and the state and things like that. When they could put, like, specific occult techniques to use they were very much in favor of it and
2: well that's because fascists don't care about what's true they care about what works um you know if you're looking at the forming of societies and civilizations the form and that's precisely what they were trying to do they were trying to create the reich of a thousand years they were trying to create an entirely new vision for society and in order to do that you need a strong vision you need a strong visual presence you need a strong and cohesive bond of people and one of the easiest ways to do that is to have some sort form of cosmology some form of spirituality some form of strong iconography so in that sense they very much knew what they were doing the main goal of any occult work is to move the zeitgeist and to have an impact on the collective consciousness, whether that be through symbols, whether that be through um, events, or the orchestration of events, things like that, are the goals. And these, this is the reason why the fa- the fascist regimes have uh, notoriously used the occult because it's a very easy way to make an impact. In the collective unconscious.
0: I I guess this goes back to as well the the kind of the idea of metapolitics which um the French New Right are really into and like changing the culture cultural framework around society before you can change the political structure Mm -hmm. and the politics of a society and yeah I think that's a super interesting way of kind of thinking of these ideas as like animating events and kind of Mm uh forces which try and push society in in a in a different direction they're like they're they're super extreme and they're like They're kind of like, they're only going to be taken on board by a certain section of people, but like, that doesn't
1: matter as long as the culture goes in a certain direction.
2: Exactly. These
1: things have also kind of interesting relationship with both science and technology. Mm -hmm. So in particular about technology, the, to some extent, I think you could attribute um, some of the kind of symbolic power of Nazism in Germany to its just use of like um, mass produced radios, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. it, um. Obligated people to have in their houses. Mm-hmm. And so this seems at the time like this kind of almost terrifying like, occultic power, mm-hmm. the presence of the leader in kind of every moment, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and uh, in the contemporary way of fascism, there is another technology distribution. It's just that it's the uh, mass participation internet. Mm-hmm. And there's a similar kind of occultic agency attributed to these things. In the, you know, in the Nazi period, it's. Um, uh, bound up with um, uh, somewhat kind of like uh, poorly understood electromagnetism mm-hmm. theory mm-hmm. Um, and in the contemporary period it's kind of bound up with like meme magic yeah. and this this notion that one has a kind of like a hugely outsized effect on the world and can uh, manipulate the world with symbols. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if that's kind of to be taken seriously mm-hmm. or to be taken in earnest as a piece of mm-hmm. genuine fascist thought or it's supposed to be taken as like a joke as like an uh, As something we should Mm,
2: ridicule, (laughs) but
1: like, but 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 it's something they are also ridiculing. Yeah, not just that we should ridicule it as
2: Mm. well. I, I mean, it really depends on your frame of reference. Like I tell people all the time, you can take it seriously if you want to or you could not Um, like I said before fascists don't care about what is true they care about what works Um, and for me symbols um, are kind of a distilled form of an idea our culture is built out of symbols our culture is built out of ideas and I think that any sort of manipulation of symbols that has a detrimental effect on society should be taken seriously whether you're somebody who's a believer in the occult or not i think it's definitely something that on the left we should be aware of and that we should be taking seriously because um symbols and iconography are incredibly powerful shortcuts past people's conscious minds into their subconscious minds there are kids now who will forever associate pepe the frog with hate speech and violence that you don't even have to... That's already made, that's already done, that's firmly in the zeitgeist. And these uh, techniques are a way of manipulating the zeitgeist towards their ends. And they are continuously doing it successfully. Um, It just takes us, you know, getting off our high horses, taking this stuff seriously, and also trying to reverse engineer that technology so that it works for us as well.
0: Um, It does link into, like kind of the modern phase of capitalism that we're in as well, in that like the the symbols that are kind of like lepton and like appropriated are like ones that have been created to be like kind of popular kind of uh, images within like an account, the capitalist unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, the, the, the Pepe meme was a, just a kind of popular silly frog thing until mm-hmm. it like became a Nazi and became like associated with Trump and, and like really reactionary movements. Um, the same thing is happening... With uh, PewDiePie, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, the what the first thing the what one of the things the, the the shooter in New Zealand said before he started killing people was subscribe to PewDiePie, mm-hmm. and this can is now this this innocuous kind of thing of like the the most popular YouTuber in the whole world um, is now linked to kind of like genocidal murder, mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of been subsumed into kind of like our discourse
2: they are having an impact on the zeitgeist and they're doing it pretty seamlessly Um, and you know one of the key one key principle within the occult is sort of profaning the sacred turning the sacred into something profane there is a huge undercurrent of esoteric fascism on the far right in the modern day Um, but the left tends to sneer at it as oh they're just kind of larping you know, like, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, annoying to me because every single major movement in history has had some form of occult influence behind it. Um, all you have to do is name one. And I could tell you, um, from even when you were talking about technology, like with, uh, NASA, Jack Parsons, he was a, a massive occultist.
1: He's a really interesting guy. Yeah. <laughs> Jack, Parsons. Jack Parsons.
2: Yeah. He's he was a, yeah. a rocket he was scientist. He was a rocket scientist. Um, of in the early 20th century, and without him, we wouldn't have NASA. Um, the reason why his name was sort of uh, expelled from the scientific canon is because he was an occultist, an mm. out occultist.
1: He went out into the desert and tried to uh, summon a demon.
2: Karonzon.
1: Yeah. And this, the the, de- the demon summoning ritual went wrong, and uh, the rocket he was using, or the kind of explosives oh he was using to God. summon <laughs> the demon, killed him, uh, and he was uh, never kind of like heard of.
2: Yeah, but without him, there would be no. Yeah, luna. he was. Major
1: a, figure in rocketry.
2: Yeah, major major figure um, in it, but his name was expunged from the scientific um, scientific canon because he was an occultist. The same way, you know, there are loads of people throughout history that you wouldn't know were fucking around with the occult, but they were fucking around with the occult. <laughs> um, it's a massive influence throughout all areas of culture. Even now in Silicon Valley, as we speak, we have esoteric fascists that are designing the future.
0: I mean, the, the, these people would never say it, would they? But like, you can imagine someone like Peter Thiel, uh, like you know, like gets blood transfusions from like, young people. You don't stuff. want
2: me to start spilling tea here <laughs> on your podcast. But yeah, it, there's a massive, massive undercurrent of esoteric fascist, well, fascists to begin with um, in Silicon Valley. And then the esoteric angle then comes into it. Um, and they're literally designing the future. People who have these beliefs. Are working to design the world of tomorrow, and what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> you know, um, it's a it's a terrifying thought because, like I said, they see they see history as cyclical. They see all of these events from, you know, uh, Aleister Crowley's first uh, uttering of you know the his aeonic cosmology to uh, Charles Manson's uh, Manson family murders to you know the murder that happened recently in Christchurch they see all of these events as being linked um and that's a scary scary thing if you think about it a very very scary thing one of the
1: kind of like I guess like kind of big defense defenses of the occult is that it might give you access to something you genuinely don't kind of want to know mm. so instead of being a kind of practice uh that you might get involved in because you were trying to kind of reaffirm and re-establish and reassert your own Superiority, for example, racially or Mm. personally, Uh, it's a it's a reason, it's a it's a thing you might be able to um, get involved with in order to find out something kind of like truly strange Mm -hmm. about the world, and therefore enter into a kind of mysticism, that or kind of mystification of the world that wasn't necessarily like entirely comfortable. Mm. Mm -hmm. It seems like the fascist esoteric fascist practice. Mm -hmm. Mostly consists of trying to find out the thing you already want to know. Yeah, you exactly. already want to know that you're superior. Exactly. And so you find out you superior. You superior. You go through some sort of transformation. Um, these are, uh, let's say, emotional needs. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, subjective needs. Yeah, these,
1: sub- yeah. these are subjective needs the, uh, of of people. Um, the left is uh, perhaps sometimes disparaging of the the pop like the use or value of ritual. Mm-hmm. How do you think? these things can be reintegrated into or ritual Mm. um, or some other way of fulfilling these subjective needs can be Mm. reintegrated into life on the left
2: Mm. well i talk about this a lot on my channel it's actually the reason i started my channel in the first place um because i think that the left has notoriously kind of a, a kind of um uh just completely ignored these subjective needs in favor of paying attention to kind of cold material analysis. And although this material analysis is incredibly important, if we neglect, again, that territory, if we cede that territory to the right wing, you get esoteric fascism. You get, you know, you know you can't just take care of the body. You also have to take care of the soul, in my opinion. Um, you can't... Um, you can't neglect the areas of life that are subjective and expect to create any sort of um, movement or system that has a holistically uh, good effect on the individual. We need to um, do a better job of paying attention to things like meaning and community and ritual and beauty and a sense of belonging. Um, we need to, you know, take all of these things Sort of traditions that the human family has um, has 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 created over the you know millennia that humans have been around. These traditions that are meant to keep us whole, to keep us safe, to give us rites of passage, to keep give us meaning, to give us a sense of ourselves and a sense of our connection to the world. Um, uh, we need to take these things seriously. Um, I'm not here to be prescriptive about what that could look like. I think it's different for everybody because not everybody is going to celebrate the spring equinox. Um, I, I do that, but not everybody is going to be into that. But just something as simple as having a more community oriented attitude, taking things like mental health seriously, taking things like, um, you know, art seriously. Beauty, seriously, all the things that are usually considered superfluous and frivolous are the areas that we should be trying to dominate. Um, And trying to sort of, uh, it doesn't even necessarily need to be linked to politics. We all have rituals. We all have private rituals. We have mundane rituals. um, But a ritual can really, you know, be done around anything. It doesn't have to be, you know, around a fucking bonfire or holding hands and like summoning (laughs) demons or whatever, even though that's like a cool thing for me. (laughs) Objectively cool, by the way. (laughs) Objectively cool. Mm -hmm. But it could be pretty much anything. um, And I think these are the things that we need to take seriously because we live in a dark and dangerous world one that is basically designed to eat your soul alive and it's your job it's our job to keep each other's souls alive and part of that is giving people a place to go, a place where they can have a repeated assurance of security, a repeated assurance of, of community. And that is what ritual is really for. And the thing is fascists have weaponized this. They understand this. If you look at a lot of these young men, like you said, they are rudderless. They don't have a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of community, a sense of um, camaraderie. And this uh, kind of dark alternative has now arisen. For them, and there's no kind of alternative for that on the left. This is a, the left. They see the left as the place where they'll get browbeaten and uh, called out, or you know, cancelled or whatever. They don't see it as a a place for re- of refuge, which is really what we should be. We should be a place of refuge. We should be the place where people come to find vindication, not false validation, um, which is a loop that we get stuck in but it's also a loop that the fascists are kind of you know opening up as a kind of honey trap almost um yeah yeah
0: you just look at some of these movements like like incels and the kind of forms they create they've they've created a community out like the, the deepest sense of nihilism you can like really like create yeah and i mean congrats to them that's like really that's quite an achievement to yeah. do but i think the left has like uh the left does have a lot of, like, history to draw on in this kind of regard, like, the kind of, the basic kind of solidarity thing of, if you'll be there for me, I'll be there for you. Um, like, is like, it is a powerful thing. It's just not really ever kind of properly brought out, I guess. And,
1: yeah. One thing, one of the kind of interesting things about race science and uh, the incel movement is that there's been a, like, a real mass return to phrenology and attempts to define awesome. like skull shape and you know, this kind of thing. And Head all the measuring
2: of, devices. Yeah, all, 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 all the kind
1: of things that were kind of the, the, the pseudoscience of the early 20th century oh, so dear. I kind of come back. I wanted to kind of like bring in something that I think might happen in the future, mm. um, which is another form of pseudoscience, which is Malthusianism. Mm. So... We mentioned a bit earlier about kind of people living in America, and uh, I think it was you, Alex, who said that people had to work kind of overtime to produce these kind of rituals, um, often which were you know, kind of occultic in nature, in order to feel like they properly embodied or properly kind of lived in that world. And it, but these um, kind of spaces that they've kind of that maybe people in the far right uh, in you know, the wilderness of the United States have managed to w- make into their own kind of world; those are changing. And the kind of sanctity and the stability of that wilderness Mm -hmm. is transforming. And the reason why it's transforming is because of global climate change. Mm -hmm. Another thing that that will produce is almost certainly mass, mass migration Mm -hmm. from the whole kind of central bound of the world Mm -hmm. um, northwards Mm -hmm. um, into America, into Europe. Mm -hmm. This is one of the reasons why I think um, anti-fascists need to begin to think more long term because the the major thing that's going to shift in the next 50 years is the rise of nativist movements and i mm-hmm. think some of the things they'll draw on to ground themselves or to say that you know this land mm-hmm. and not just you know comes kind of abstract nationhood but specifically this territory this space is uh, owned exclusively by white people mm-hmm. or by certain people probably mm-hmm. by white people is uh, an increased use or a shift from occultic practice to being you know screaming in the woods to being a kind of wholesale eco-fascism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think, does do you think there is a connection here mm-hmm. between eco and the occult? Mm-hmm.
2: Definitely. Do you think there
1: will begin to be more so? Yeah, a, a, definitely.
2: A? Um, a lot of eco-fascists are actually uh, pagans. I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, the Wolves of In- England. England. Vol- yeah, yeah. Th- those guys are occult eco-fascists. The idea of a connection to the land being the primary source of their spiritual power and the idea that these invaders are um, coming to take the land away from them and change their culture, change the things that uh, make their culture unique, um, it it can be quite a powerful sort of motivating force um, when it comes to this sort of xenophobia and racism. Um, The idea of uh, spiritual jurisdiction over a certain piece of land is something that's like as old as you know humans have been around for. <laughs> um, we've always sort of placed significance on land, and that's not something that should be disrespected, in my opinion. Um, you know, before you know, feudal landlords enclosed the land. You know, people had a very, very spiritual um, connection to the land that they lived on, they farmed on. Um, You know, they had more of a say in how their communities were structured. They had more of a say in the way that their communities were built. And capitalism, the forces of capitalism and sort of proto-capitalism came in and and alienated us from the land, alienated us from um, our relationship to the land in order for it to be privatized and enclosed. So when it comes to sort of a leftist sort of pagan idea about the land, the land you live on is the land that you should connect to. And I think that that's something that we should take very seriously on the left is really getting to know our communities, um, really getting to know the land that we're on, getting to understand the traditions of those lands as well. Um, And I think that from there, it will give us a point, a place of power um, over the eco-fascists because it's not just their claim it's ours too. And anybody who lives and makes their life somewhere, that's where they belong in my opinion. Um, But we also have to be uh, respectful, I guess, of the the specific cultures, no matter where it is in the world. I, I wouldn't, Go to a Native American reservation and disrespect it. The same way there are, you know, May Day festiv- festivities that happen in in this country every year. I think that's something that's beautiful, and that should be celebrated. I don't think it's something that we should necessarily uh, see as a suspicious thing, and we shouldn't let the fascists claim that either. Why should they? Ha- why should they have that? Why should we allow them to stake the claim claim on those things? we should claim those things. Um, but they often use that sort of ethno-nationalist uh, um, kind of uh, idea to claim, lay claim that this is my culture. Well, it's mine too. I'm allowed to have it too, which is why I have, you know, runes, which is why I have uh, candles for the, for the Norns on my altar, because I can. Um, <laughs> and I think that people should take more of that kind of approach when dealing with issues of, of land and culture and homestead, um, there's a way to enjoy these things in a respectful way that doesn't necessarily involve involve ceding that territory to people with a nefarious agenda.
0: Just thinking about the the, the thing about May Day, you're totally right, and um, you know the left also has a strong May Day thing going yeah. on. But it's a real it's a real shame, at, at least in London, that. Most Maydays are basically, like, the Stalinist people with their, like, like Lenin, Mao, Stalin, Hoxha, all those kind of people up in big portraits mm. instead of, like, like, an actual, like, kind of London May, workers' Mayday, mm. which is, like, obviously in London it's a huge tradition, but these, these like, Maydays and these, like, Mayday histories are, like, present in, like, cities and villages and towns across, yeah. kind of, the UK and, you know, Europe And we should get more
2: involved in that and, like, you know we should be involving ourselves in those communities because fascists happily will, you know, they'll happily go there and, you know, stir up, you know, ethnic hatred. They'll happily go there and stir up, um, all kinds of things. But for us to go there and say, we know, we understand the relationship that you have with your land. We know that this was taken from you through enclosure, through capitalism. We understand that you're suffering the same process of alienation as we are. We are your friends, not your enemies. These are the kinds of messages that we should be sending, the kinds of relationships that we should be forging. You know, instead, there seems to be this sort of metropolitan elitism that you see kind of spreading around on the left or in leftist circles, the idea that, and we we kind of happily operate within the traps that capitalism has set for us, you know, this sort of very basic consensus reality that capitalism has sent from us one that's alienated from nature one that's alienated from the land one that doesn't uh take those sorts of relationships seriously and this is prime territory for the eco-fascists and esoteric fascists to seize um because we don't we don't we don't we don't participate we don't you know we don't necessarily um uh you know, go out of our way to be present in certain things. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think that it's something that we we should take seriously. And in, in terms of like you know global global warming, climate change, and um, the refugee crisis, and people moving northward, and you know the hilt of fascist ideas being on the ownership over the land. I think we need to work on redefining what it means to be part of a place. Um, I think that that's a major thing. People still ask me where I'm from, if I'm British and and things like that, uh, because I don't have white skin. Um, But I was born here. Uh, You know, this is just as much my land as it is anybody else's land. I have a very special relationship with this land and all of the mystical energies of this land are things that I work with um, and a lot of, you know, esoteric fascists would be horrified to hear a black woman, mm. you know, going to, you know, Canterbury to like get water from a well. That, <laughs> that they, they, they would see that as such an affront. But it's my land too. It, you know, just because I don't have ancestors here for thousands of years, maybe in a thousand years in the future, my ancestral line will still be here. Um, so I think we need to work on sort of redefining what it means to be part of a place that's such a good
0: point like and it it doesn't just relate to like esoteric fascist kind of thinking as well but also like to broader like kind of state racism as well um when the immigration act was brought in in like 1973 or one maybe uh it was like an explicitly racist kind of border law which said that if you 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 were only a citizen if you could claim uh like if one of your grandparents was born in england Mm. and so obviously that meant a lot of like uh obviously like discriminated uh Against um, BME people and black and brown people, <laughs> to and and to kind of accept a lot of like kind of white Europeans who would like moved out, or moved to the colonies or whatever. Mm. Um, and so is it that this kind of this is this is my place too? Uh, is also like kind of like a an affront to like practices that are, that are, that are going on now and that have been like kind of embedded in society
1: since like you know definitely. I guess like I I would want to be kind of careful about uh, wondering if people. Were from places because they lived there um, regardless of how they kind of came there and presumably this this like notion of a kind of being from a place would also mean that um, absolutely anyone could claim that I just maybe I have a kind of very contrarian uh, position on this the, Um which mm-hmm. is that one of the good things about capitalism is actually that it uh, accelerates um, ta- detachment from place mm-hmm. um, and it spreads people around and makes them kind of flow around mm-hmm. uh, often in uh, ways that are violent, but um, or, but also in ways that are kind of like quite free, and quite like a, um, comparatively uh, self-determined de- compared mm-hmm. to say what they would have been in feudalism. So I I, I I wonder how like uh, thinking about like the spirituality of a place would interact with say like someone who is fleeing uh, uh, like an inevitable uh, crop failure mm-hmm. in Eritrea. Mm. Right Like how would the history of Kent uh, like interact with them in a kind of a mm. and I, I, I don't, I don't I don't understand how.
2: Like yeah. I mean, I can speak from my experience like I am a third generation migrant from Nigeria. My grandmother uh, my great my, gra- my grandmother came here with her family during the Biafra War just like at, during the aftermath of that. Um, you know, when they came here, they were kind of just focusing on settling and forging a life for themselves. And then they had my mom and now here's me. Um, I've, I'm privileged enough to now have the presence of mind to really think about the land that I'm on. And the significance of, you know, this land and what it means to me and sort of forging my own relationship with it in that sense. So it's not an immediate process. It sometimes takes a couple of generations for that to happen. It sometimes takes, um, you know, it, it sometimes takes more than a couple of generations for that to to occur, but um, I I'm fascinated by places. Most people are fascinated by places, and if you're somebody who is part of a diaspora or has been de- displaced in some way, you'll inevitably have to interact with the culture that you're trying to uh, assimilate into. I really don't like the word assimilate, but yeah. <laughs> um, that you're trying to, that you're living on. You're going to have to deal with the people. You're going to be educated in the schools. You're going to, your children at least, are going to be educated in the schools. You're going to have to learn about the local customs. And what I'm concerned about is creating an a environment where that's happy and that's okay. Um, where uh, it's a friendly kind of exchange in that regard. Um, where, where What I see happening on the left is there being a lot of disdain for folk culture, traditional culture, things like that because it's associated with nationalism it's associated with the far right it's associated with those people over there who are don't like brown people whereas what i'm saying is we should reclaim that territory so that we do have the power to bring people into the culture in a way that's holistic and friendly in a way that's a um a good sort of mediated exchange when those uh things are occurring and it it'll, it'll take time it may take generations like i said i'll be able to um i am a- now able to do that because i um i am uh, a third generation and you know a lot of the hardship that my family suffered um is now kind of subsiding because it's been three generations so i have more time and presence of mind to think about these things um uh, but it took kind people in pagan circles to teach me about these things and show me that they weren't scary things and that they were things that I could also be inspired by and things that I could also be benefit that could also be beneficial to me. Vice versa. I've also had the privilege of teaching a lot of people about African traditions and our ways of of ritual and community and healing and things like that. things that have been incredibly beneficial to to other people too. Um, so yeah
0: I think yeah I think it's an interesting one I think part of the power um, power of this kind of outlook maybe is that it's also open to like syncretic kind of syncretic kind of like mixed up kind of identities and like allegiance to multiple places at the same time which is also a challenge to this kind of thinking Mm -hmm. so like I noticed that you said um, you said uh, our traditions when referring to Africa as well Mm -hmm. And that is equally like, like in your, I guess I don't want to speak for you, but no, like <laughs> it could be conceived that it's equ- these two places are equally in yeah, your like kind of place.
2: Very much. <laughs>
0: I know that like, like the f- fascists in any kind of style love to apportion people to certain like delineated territories. Like the Nazi theorist Karl Karl Schmidt said that the best Jews were the Jews living in Israel because that's where they were meant to be. And everyone, all the others were like kind of interlopers in that, in, in wherever land they were. And like the ultimate challenge to like kind of his kind of conception of, of, of like race and where people belong was like di- diasporic diasporic Judaism and the fact that they could make their own cultures that were separate from mm. like the specific territory where Israel was.
2: I think that the fascists would have a very difficult time putting me in a cultural box. Um, the, I have a spiritual connection to. Uh, you know the Yoruba land just as much as I have a spiritual connection to this country as well um, and I think that that is an affront to any kind of fascist idea about dominion over the land and I think that pe- more people should take that um, that approach for sure
0: the, the, and the left also has its own like kind of explanation for the world which is like the kind of class struggle kind of thing mm-hmm. and that the working class of the whole world should be kind of unite, united together mm-hmm. in solidarity mm-hmm. which isn't like equally another kind of kind of tradition another kind of like mechanic to draw upon when exactly. you're like kind of thinking these things through is that there there is like kind of ultimate ultimately antagonisms within all societies um and recognizing that is part of like kind of should be part of like like a a broader left project to bring people into a movement.
2: Exactly. We have to look at ourselves as the ones steering the steering wheel of history because the fascists see themselves as the ones steering the steering wheel of history. Um, So in my opinion, we need to see ourselves as being in charge the same way they see themselves as being in charge. Um, You know, nothing is set in stone about the future it's our job to build it and you know reading the um reading reading you know any of Karl Marx's work it's, it's almost like uh it's almost like some kind of uh you know reading the bible almost there's a lot of like kind of a, Episcopal language in there very evangelical <laughs> like there's you know it, it, that there's that fire that spirit Because it appeals to the collective imagination, you know, it, it stirs people up, it gets people fired up, it, it paints a portrait of something greater than themselves. Um, And I think that some of that spunk is missing. And it's something that the fascists have been able to sort of use to their advantage historically because we're all very polite and we all want to be very reasonable and very rational you know fuck reason fuck rationality (laughs) like you know the human brain is such a fragile fragile organ one little slip and it's gone Mm -hmm. you know um logic is one thing but if you want to really get people you have to get them down here and I think that that's what the left sometimes misses, is that visceral kind of emotional, mythical, historical um, associations tend to be a massive driving factor in what motivates people into action and what kind of helps build and create the world and create the the future. Um, so I think that's territory that we definitely shouldn't be ceding uh, anytime soon.
1: I felt like uh... Uh, like, uh, I'm the kind of, uh, I don't know, like a, a contrarian rationalist. Uh, <laughs> kind of, uh, I mean, that's just my... Uh,
2: it's okay. I deal with you guys on Twitter all the time. Libido speaking. <laughs> um,
0: I do, do actually have a final point about language, which is like a, a lot of like internet memes and like jokes and things like that. Like the, the Navy SEAL copy pasta that was in the uh, Christchurch Shooters Manifesto. It's A lot of these kind of occult references, they they work in all the ways that we've been talking about, but they also work to create kind of like an unintelligible language mm-hmm. to the uninitiated. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these kind of like uh, references to Thule or Atlantis or like mm-hmm. the Hyperboreans and all these kind of like kind of mad things that were thought up in like the early 1900s and late and 1800s and stuff. Um, that is a way of creating like a, a common language across the globe for like various reactionary far right forces mm-hmm. and To even stand what they are even on about, we need to know what those things are. And I think that's why it's important to be, like, interrogating why, for example, the shooter said, subscribe to PewDiePie, why there's all this shit about Atlantis online and why, Why you know.
2: he he was wearing an occult symbol during the shooting as well, which is, yeah. (laughs) Why he described
1: himself as an eco-fascist. Yeah. One of the kind of difficult things about researching this area is that um, as soon as you find something out uh, and you kind of, you know you go to the toilet or whatever, you're reading like, you've read like two paragraphs and you go to the toilet and you think, what could possibly be the next paragraph? And then you come back and then what actually is the next paragraph is always like much madder than you could possibly (laughs) have imagined it to be. And so like, I think the, the level of like detail that is required in thinking about this stuff or like details required in the kind of research of this stuff, Just because it's so difficult to rationally reconstruct anything from this things, I I find this like a really kind of like an impediment to thinking about it.
2: Mm. I think your logic definitely might be an impediment if that's the kind of um, frame that you're looking at it from. Because it's not like I said, they don't care about what's right. They care about what works. We need to be honest in our approach when we're dealing with this sort of material is that, you know, then we're not dealing in the area of logic we're dealing in the area of the unconscious, of the esoteric, of the occult, and your logical faculties aren't going to save you there, buddy, (laughs) you know, they're not of much use in that regard. Um, Part of the use of symbols is to bypass those logical faculties and to enter somewhere where you are less able to deconstruct them. So Angie
1: uh, has a YouTube channel? called Angie Speaks.
2: Yeah. Um, so uh, I started my channel about eight months ago. Um, I talk primarily about a lot of the things that I've been talking about today. Um, I kind of saw that area of leftist dialogue as lacking, which was what sort of motivated me to start my channel. I'm very interested in sort of the subjective side of human life. Um, there, There's obviously material analysis on there, but I don't spend a a great time deal of time talking about that stuff. I talk about how leftism has influenced art. I talk about how leftism has influenced spirituality. I talk about psychology. I talk about all of those weird subjective areas, but I bring sort of a leftist spin to them. So that's kind of my little domain. So if you're interested in that, um, come check me out.
1: We've also got a Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. like
0: Angie says. <laughs> Angie has a Patreon we also have a Patreon um, which you can find at uh, Patreon something 12 Rules for What please do give us uh, some money so we can keep doing this as easily as possible thank you
2: I second that I co-sign <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's it for this episode thanks for listening we'll be back next time talking about Generation Identity see you then bye
2: 12 Rules for What